Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast. This week, we've got Brent Adamson. He is the author of The Challenger Sale, Gartner's Sensemaking, Buyer Journey, and a couple of recent HBR articles looking at the evolution of B2B sales and marketing and the buyer journey. This is a great show. I'm really excited. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Sleeping Barber Podcast, a place for business leaders to get the best and most credible information on marketing, strategy, and innovation. Your hosts, Mark Binkley and Vasily Sturos, share their experiences as they gather insights from the world's leading experts. Now, on with the show. On the show today, we've got Brent Adamson. Brent, welcome to the show. We're super excited to have you here. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, V. It's good to be here. Yeah. You are a world-renowned researcher, author, advisor to B2B executives. Um, I first heard about you through the Challenger sale. And then later I was like, wait a sec, is this the same guy as a Gardner? <laughs> and I'm going through all my notes. Because he had tons of great stuff at Gardner that I dug into. Sense making was a part of that. The buyer yep. journey. Hmm. Did a couple of uh, HBR articles recently that um, sense making for sales and traditional B2B marketing. Uh, sales and marketing becoming obsolete. Um, and so we're really going to kind of jump in a lot of this content today with you and talk about the evolution of B2B buying and the sales and marketing process. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, Mark, just to be fair to Gartner, because, uh, you know, they, I, I actually departed about a year ago. I'm at a company called Ecosystems now. Just to, um, I, I don't know that Gartner wants to publicly own me, as it were. This fair is, enough. <laughs> thing. We we have nothing to do with that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> again. Yeah. So, you know, in, in terms of, um, I've just been fascinated by some of these timeline things and I, I get, yeah. I nerd out on some things. So we all talk about the sales and marketing funnel as a general process, yeah. which is invented about a hundred years ago. And then I always think back to Glengarry, Gill and Ross and, you know, the sales are weak or your leads yeah. are weak, you yeah. know, <laughs> coffees for closers, that old thing. That was 30 years ago. Stick and each of these yep. moments in time kind of typify sort of like, a relationship between sales and marketing. Collar uh, published and, and a few other people in the uh, published uh, the war between sales and marketing 20 years ago in HBR. Mm -hmm. About 12 years ago, you come out with the challenger sale. Uh, around the same time, social media blows up. Facebook goes public and, and digital media and all those kinds of things started prolifer proliferating. Inbound leads and that kind of stuff started happening. You've got uh, the long and hard slog and sense making about five years ago. And then this past year, you came out with this article on sales and marketing, traditional sales and marketing becoming obsolete. When you look back at a timeline like that, there's clearly lots of change, but what are some of the big changes that you think in the buyer journey or the buyer process to start? Well, if you think about that, that arc of timeline, um, so we can talk about big, big picture here. The, um, Oh, there's a couple of them. Uh, by the way, so right about the time that Kotler article came out about 20 years ago, we were running a meeting at the Corporate Executive Board, which became CEB, which then became acquired by Gartner, um, around sales and marketing um, uh, sales and marketing integration. So it was a meeting where mm -hmm. we had heads of sales, heads of marketing from the same company come together. We spent the day together as, you know, uh, talking about essentially why can't we all just get along. And what's interesting, Mark, is at that time, 20 years ago, it seemed like, a, you know, a topic that had been around forever. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so particularly for those who are relatively new to the sales and marketing world who look around today and say, man, the sales and marketing not getting along sort of thing just seems like such a, it's like, this is like, it's as old as 
time, or at least as old <laughs> as commerce, right? But the yeah, I I think you know in in some ways, if we think about marketing as the function of scale, so I'm I'm trying to connect with customers at arm's length and at scale. So I think through the you know the lens that I look at the world through is usually the the segment, for example, as opposed to the individual customer. Mm -hmm. um, and we think of sales as sort of the you know in person shaking hands, you know face to face, one to one. Uh, sales approach. And so you you use these at scale early on in the funnel for demand gen and you use the face-to-face -face sort of sort of mid-funnel on to the end. And and and, and I guess maybe arguably uh, at the very beginning of time that all kind of made sense. But if you move across time, particularly over, especially I think the last 15 years, so much uh, has changed. And I think what's really, really changed isn't so much sales and marketing. In fact, that's maybe the arguably interesting, most interesting story is the fact that sales and marketing traditionally haven't changed much from that particular opening posture. It's just that the world around sales and marketing and particularly the world of B2B buying has changed radically, right? So um, the the thing that, and it's, 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 I think more a story is we haven't kept up. So, so hmm. you know, it's not a story of like, yeah, sales and marketing, what were you doing thinking about like building such a, you know, illogical model that makes no sense. I think at the time it was conceived and built and developed over the course of probably decades, it probably did actually make a lot of sense. But where are we today? Well, the world we're in today is a world where customers, of course, can buy through digital channels and they can inform themselves and educate themselves through digital channels and they can get very, very deep into a buying journey before ever needing to talk to a sales rep uh, at all. Mm -hmm. um, so that that is one dimension, I think. the Because what happened over time is that sales and then by the way then also then marketing realized hey there's a thing called abm or account-based marketing which yeah. allows me to do one-to-one -one marketing so i'm hey I'm, maybe i'm no longer the function of scale right and now there's sales reps who are selling through digital channels on zoom say hey, i can reach out through social selling and social media so i can essentially yeah. be my own mark so basically these these very um logical uh separations of labor right or di 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 divisions of labor between sales and marketing have become desperately clouded just because the world of digital, the world of B2B buying has changed so much that, you know, it's, it's unclear, it, it, you know, who's supposed to do where the what. handoff is yeah. exactly. Or, or, or even if there should be a handoff. And so right. that's, so yeah, that's, so everything else has changed other than sales and marketing, maybe. You know, it's interesting, like the, you talked about the the handoff and just doing some research, obviously for the podcast here, we came across the, the idea they introduced around looping. Right. And it was essentially yeah. the um, that customers don't move in that linear path that we all like to believe that they do. There is that and the start and the end are probably the, the right context, but yeah. the messy middle or call it what you will. Do you have a, do you mind kind of talking about looping a little bit? Yeah, so so the idea of looping came out from a really interesting approach to B2B sale, uh, B2B buying really. That was inspired um, by Bob Mesta, M-O-E-S-T-A. Bob Mesta and Clayton Christensen wrote an article a few years ago, a number of years ago now, I guess, um, uh, in in the Harvard Business Review about their, their concept of what's called jobs to be done. Mm -hmm. And the jobs to be done approach uh, is essentially, you know, if you think about a consumer, particularly B2C world, what are the jobs that that consumer is trying to uh complete to their satisfaction in order for a purchase to actually happen or a decision to be made. Um, working with Bob, we actually took that idea and we, we applied it to B2B, complex B2B purchases. Right. And so we started asking questions like, what are the jobs that customers have to complete to their satisfaction in order for them to make progress across a, a complex buying journey, ultimately make that purchase decision? And mm -hmm. as part of that, we, we, we identified, and, and 
six jobs total. I'll give you the sort of the four basic ones. And it seems kind of straightforward, right? Which is um, in, in interviewing lots and lots and lots of customers, people involved in the B2B purchase, um, we, we identified problem identification, solution exploration, requirements building, and then supplier selection. As those are the four jobs. And you, you, at least within the scope of what we're trying, there's implementation and there's some things that come after the purchase mm-hmm. that are really important as well. But broadly speaking, I've got to identify a problem. I've got to explore solutions. I've got to build requirements. And then I've got to select a supplier. So that alone seems pretty straightforward. In fact, you can kind of put it on the slide as we did. And there you go. It's like there's yeah. four, four jobs. And when you call them the four jobs, it's only um, – it's just a small difference. It's just a small difference or small edit. Say those are the four steps, right? Because you think four yeah. jobs equals four steps. I do step one, step two, step three. They're in a linear, logical order. It makes a ton of sense. But here's why it was so interesting to identify those four jobs in the first place. Because once you identify the jobs, you can start running you know, analyses. You can start running surveys and collecting data around them. And lo and behold, what we found is maybe not so surprising, is that when you ask customers how often. Do you find yourself going back and repeating or, or revisiting a job after mm-hmm. you after such time that you thought it was complete? So you've identified a problem, you move on yeah. to exploring solutions. Now you're building requirements. Do you ever go back and think about the problem again? And what we found is 96, I think it was, percent of customers told us that they go back and revisit at least one job, and each job gets revisited um, by about 75% of B2B buyers. So it's in other incredible. Words, it's not it's not you know step because you think it's so easy and i think this is why buyers get so frustrated like because if you think about your own experience inside your own company with your colleagues like, how hard could this possibly be we identify you may not think about it quite with this language around it but it's like yeah. we figure out what we're trying to do we go out and figure out what we can do to solve it we pick a you know uh, pick a, a we describe a solution we pick a supplier and basta you're done right but it uh, sorry there's a little greek for you but the, but it doesn't actually work that way right it's like it's like oh we just spent a million bucks right but the but what happens is right the um you identify a problem you explore solutions and exploring solutions you realize maybe you didn't quite get the problem right so then you yeah. go back identify that you recalibrate the problem then you get to building out requirements all of a sudden there's budget changes or there's MA activity or a new ceo or, yeah. or procurement gets involved and like and it's just so maddeningly frustrating yeah. that customers loop through this now now let's take that point and mark put it back to your original point right which is if marketing is the function of early funnel and sales is the function of late funnel what do you do when from a customer's perspective there is no early or late because i'm looping i'm early now i'm late now i'm late yeah. i'm early early late late yeah, late, yeah. late early late 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 early and then i'm also digital in person in person digital digital person 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 digital, yeah. digital. it's like how the heck is this like traditional setup of first the marketing then the sales supposed to even like it doesn't make any sense at all yeah. and i think that's why we struggle so much is because We've got an organizational setup, a process, a methodological yeah. setup that no longer comes close to matching how buying actually unfolds. Yeah. It, 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 there's so much in there that I want to comment <laughs> <There's> on. a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's tons. But like, I can appreciate how, like we did a lot of work on the decision-making unit that's involved in, a B2B pro- in our mm-hmm. B2B process. So we understood a lot more about who the decision makers are. We identified there was about four primary buyers, maybe five, it include the consultant. But yeah, that that those jobs to be done was so such an eye opener for me when I first started looking at it, because you realize the complexity of it, because if one person's opinion changes in the decision making unit, it could change the requirements. It could change the solution you're looking for. Or they find out to your point, they find out the solution and then somebody else, one of the other decision makers goes, nah, forget it. I don't I'm out, (laughs) you know, and then you have to create this alignment all over again. So it's as much about choosing something as it is about 
getting agreement internally. Hundred percent. You know the um, the a couple thoughts in that that I think are really important. First of all, just to your point, so that so we first started studying the number of stakeholders inside of B two B purchase back in I don't know two thousand six two thousand. That was probably a little later than that, but I'll never forget. It was a head of sales that literally sat down. We were you know in, a, in a, I was running a meeting in Chicago and there was a head of sales there with, with a bunch of head of sales there. But one of them raised their hand at some point and said this. He said Brent, we're finding this just seems to be more people involved in a purchase decision ever we used to find the senior decision maker get the deal done and now there's all these other people there and that was intriguing so we started studying it we went out and did a big survey a couple thousand buyers and we found on average there's 5.4 people involved in a typical p2b purchase so the second book that we wrote around the challenger work is called the challenger customers all about the 5.4 and i traveled all over the world talking about the 5.4 and there were stupid dad jokes about what's a 0.4 person and all that kind of stuff <laughs> but everything was about the 5.4 and again, the whole book was out and the whole world's like, eh, these guys are talking about the 5.4. And there was a moment, a very small, short moment in history where the 5.4 was like the, the the thing that everyone was talking about. And then about six months later, we re-ran the survey and 5.4 went up to 6.8. It's like, oh, crap. Now what do I do, right? It's which, by the way, I've learned this hard lesson. It's like never brand a statistic ever because the – and then the year after that, it went from 6.8 to 7 point something. And after that, every single year that we revisited that survey with the same methodology went up. Uh, and the last time we did it officially, at least before my departure, it was double digits. So it was 11 point something. And it, there's actually a really interesting story about that. So our at the time, our chief research officer, a guy named Eric, who's a good friend of mine, you know, we'd, we'd done the research. We were going to put on a slide. We can go out in the world and talk talk about the 11 point whatever and talk about how the number mm -hmm. had gone up. We kind of become known for that. And he right. said, Brent, you can't do that. And I said, what do you mean, Eric? And he said, no one's going to believe you. And I said, what do you mean? I said, that number has gone up so fast, so, so high, so fast. Right. That it's just, it just, it begs in, it's like incredulity. Ooh, I, that's a fancy word. Well, Basically, you don't good. believe it. Yeah. Whatever. That's I know that's nice not good. Word. I don't know what it meant. Yeah. Right? I have no idea what I just said, but I think it might've made sense. But anyway, the, um, but, but it's like, I don't know if I can believe it. So, so what we did is we, com I, but I said, Eric, the methodology is sound. He's not, but anyway, we had this big debate. So yeah. what we did is we compromised. And so we started reporting it as a range. So five right. to 11, five to right? 11, yeah. Uh, and so that's what you see. And, and actually, that's the number I still use today because of Eric. And I love Eric. He's a dear friend. But here's what actually happened in reality. Uh, this is a true story. So I went to Chicago for our chief sales officers meeting that year. This is pre-pandemic. And I put on the slide. We did the number. It's five to 11. And some head of sales, his name was Brian. He's in global logistics. Raised his hand and said, Brent, I don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> and I'm at the podium in front of, I don't know, 70 heads of sales. I'm thinking, oh, God, Eric was right. And I was like, you know, it's like, and I said, and I said what do you mean, Brian? And he said, yeah, your number, it's way too small. Right. He said, and then he proceeded to tell the story where they'd just done a deal where there were 16 stakeholders involved. And of course, the deal blew up because half the 16 stakeholders didn't even know each other. Yeah. Because, because the other point on this, Mark, that I want to make real briefly, and we'll, we can go wherever you want on this, but um, Hank Barnes, who's still at Gartner and does really, really great work at Gartner. Um, and you can find them on LinkedIn and things. But um, Hank has done some really cool research around what are called occasional buyers, because it's not just the number. It's the fact that they, they enter and exit the purchase at different points. It's not like they all right. get around in a room and say, OK, we're the buying team. Let's go. Right. right? It's For like rather one particular requirement or something like that. Exactly. In, someone jumps in and says, yeah. hey, what are these yahoos over here doing? I better get involved. Right, better get and all involved, of a sudden, yeah. IT comes on and says, you want to hold on. Wait, we need to be involved in that. <laughs> And the procurement gets in late and then someone else gets bored, moves on. Yeah. Or, you know, it's like, and, and then some people are in it from the beginning to the end. Other people, you know, poke their head in to find out what's going on, blow it up and walk out. Right. That's usually <laughs> yeah. the CEO is very frustrating. And so it's, it's this really dynamic, complex, messy process. So it's, 
it's not just the number it's the nature of their of the of the um of the involvement of each of these individuals and then finally the last thing i say about the this this dynamic is the number is the thing gets the headlines it's actually the diversity of the group that really matters right if if it was 11 people and they were all from it and all worked off the same dashboard and all agreed on everything it wouldn't matter but it's the fact that someone's from it someone's from procurement someone's from legal someone's from the germany office Good luck. Yeah, uh, you know, someone is like it's a, and I, I love Germany by the way. But the, uh, but it's like it's just it's it's everybody's got with very good intentions, mm-hmm. different set of priorities, a different set of metrics, a different set of dashboards, and when you try to align them, uh, w- when you try to get each one of them individually on board, if they're not, it's not that they need to be aligned to you, it's that they need to be aligned to each other. And if they're not, then it's it's not that it's going to be hard for them to buy from you. It's going to be hard for them to buy. In fact, it's going to be hard for them to decide. Is there a sweet spot? In that range that you've seen, I don't know. V, that that the, the question kind of implies that we're a maker on that, which maybe there's a That's little fair. bit of that, but I think we're kind of a taker on that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like it's because it's not like you can go to your customer and say, you know, actually, I think those. It's like, <laughs> how'd that go? Let's see. The customer says, "Here's the people that need to sign off for this." And if you were to say, "I I think we need to get that number down," so who do we <laughs> remove from this purchase decision? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, so well, I totally appreciate your question. I don't, I said, practically speaking, I don't know how that would work. Right. But, but, but but you could use it as a qualification metric, right? Yeah. Yeah. You could say like any deal with more than 18 people involved, we're not going to touch because it could take two. I suppose you could use it that way as a qualification metric, but, but I I think again, we're kind of a taker. Yeah. I keep thinking about like the old Amazon things. Like if you can't feed a room with two pizzas, then you have too many people in the room. So like, again, when you kind of think about this in this context, like yeah. how many people are too many people are now trying to make a decision on a technology, a product, whatever, whatever yeah. the case may be, where it just yeah. becomes, you know, maybe I think from what you're saying, it's almost on the buyer side. Like if you were to create yeah. the, the steering committee, let's say, or the decision making unit, yeah. if you yeah. had influence over who was in or who was out or which ones had just a like a racy chart, like which ones are responsible, which ones are accountable, which ones are just, you know, consulting or informed. Yeah. Well, here's a, here's a quick, well, actually two quick thoughts on the first thought is simply, I could never work at Amazon because I'd be on the smallest teams ever. Cause I need one of those pizzas for myself, but that's a whole different story. Right. So, so, so who, how are y'all splitting up the other one? Cause but anyway, the, uh, that's, that's true. Uh, but okay. But, but so you mentioned, I think very briefly, Mark, this idea of buyer enablement and, and this, I think V is where we do, there's an opportunity, I think, as sales professionals, and for that matter, as marketing professionals, as, as suppliers, to be helpful to our customers, yeah. to provide some guidance on who should be involved. Now, I don't know that we can eliminate people or say that person doesn't need to be involved, but but what we could do, and I think I've seen this actually happen, this is all part of this idea of buyer enablement, is to to kind of figuratively take your customer by the hand and coach them through this consensus creation right. process, which is to say things like, you know, have you talked to your head of procurement yet? Because we yeah. find in working with other customers like you, I say that a lot, and working with other customers like you, we find procurement typically gets involved. And when they get involved, they get involved late. And when they get involved late, they blow everything up. And it's really frustrating. <laughs> You're going to be upset. I'm going to be upset. We're all going to be frustrated. So what, what we, we might, I might suggest is you might consider getting them involved early. Right. And when you get involved early, what we find is they're going to have three questions very specifically. Here's those questions. And here's the best way to answer those questions mm. to get them on board. So now I'm see what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm playing more of a guide or a coach. Yeah. So yeah. I can't say, well, just what do we do to cut your procurement department out? I can't say that, but I, but I can help you based on what I've learned from best practices of working with procurement, my 15,000 yeah. or 15 other customers, 
I can provide you some coaching that might help you. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, before we move off of the, this timeline thing. Yeah. Uh, oh, sure. I, there's, there's a really like the point you just made around designing the experience, I think is really interesting. Yeah. I, I wanted to get into that, but um, th we've all seen things like uh, inbound was a big deal and sort of gated content and, and sort of the way that we set up our sales and marketing structure to acquire leads and to do those things that, you know, get more MQLs and V had a great line. I'll let you say that one V that I think came from you, Brent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh dear. Did I have a but great maybe line? This is where you can put that in V. <laughs> We're trying to figure out where to fit this in. But there's just what stuff was my that's great line, v? It was MQL, SAL, NMP. I loved it. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, NMP. Yeah. So it's like you got a market qualified lead, a sales accepted exactly. lead, and then marketing's like, not my not problem. Not my problem. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That so was a good like, line. I a forgot system. about that one. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> there's, now, there's, it's, there's a great ahead, line. Sorry, Mark, there's, yeah. No, there's, but there's like this great like uh, approach that we've kind of developed over years now of marketing. But, and I kind yeah. of go back to like 2010, 12-ish area. Where HubSpot came out, to me anyway, that's when I thought of it being the biggest. And they had the inbound stuff and, mm -hmm. you know, like the sales line, the guy, I forget what, I think he sold pools or something like that. But he used their all their SEO techniques and building out inbound leads and gated content. And it seems like that's the playbook that we've had for a long time. And then you get into the funnel and then the, the idea is like, or you know, the funnel, but into the pipeline. And then we'll hold back information inside of our pipeline to say, well, mm -hmm. we can't give you pricing yet because you're not at whatever stage, yeah. you're not at the right stage. So then you've kind of, you've gated content, but then to your point, the buyer journey is so dynamic and so um, non-linear. Mm -hmm. um, it just feels like those, some of those tactics are out of date now too, because of what you were saying about the buyer's modern journey. You know, the, um, I, this is almost like now we're like third rail type stuff. It's like religious warfare with marketers gated or not gated content. Um, I I continue with marketers I know well debating this nonstop, and and it's really interesting because that as you guys know the the common response for so I'm I'm in the don't gated camp more or less yeah. more more often than not. But the um um you know the the argument for gating of course is but we can't see them if if we gate it. We need to know who they're who's seen our content so we can create these lists so we can qualify the leads so we can create nurturing campaigns and and it's either becomes a vanity metric or it goes back to some sort of SLA that you've created with your organization a service level agreement or with the mm -hmm. um, with sales to say we're going to generate x number of leads and you're under this pressure to to just like you've got this dashboard that you're responding mm -hmm. to which is how click through rates or likes or shares or downloads or whatever it might be a number of new new additions to our database you know and um and it, it what happens in that world is it's not necessarily wrong but then all of a sudden the metric becomes the outcome as it becomes right. rather it becomes the means it becomes the end yeah so we start measuring ourselves on and celebrating even they're like look how many people we added to our database or look how many people we, we don't stop to think like how much of that actually generated revenue in fact Mm -hmm. When you ask marketers, as we've done in the past, like what percentage of leads that you generated actually converted to real dollars in the door? Pick your currency, pounds, euros, whatever. It's like, so what What percentage of leads that you qualified as MQLs actually became real money for your company? And when we ask marketers, these B2B marketers, complex sales, what was really interesting is, um, I'm sorry, it's been a while since I looked up data. Uh, it was it was over half of them couldn't answer the question. 
<laughs> and 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 we said just just take a wild guess and literally half of them weren't even willing to guess that's how but but for those who were willing and able to guess yeah it, it was it was about three the the average was about three percent so about three percent of the leads that we generate actually turn into money which again i don't know you might ask yourself what's the right number is it 83 percent? i don't know i don't know that that's the right number but but it does seem grossly inefficient right it's a mm -hmm. uh, that's a lot of activity to generate a little bit of interest, but that's the whole idea of a funnel, right? You got to start with this huge number to whittle it down to a small number. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the, I, I think the the broader story about gated content is just there's so much content out there today. Yeah, I, I guess it'd be two things. If you're gonna gate your content, number one, make it make it easy. Like, if you're asking me to put in a bunch of information. Uh, forget it. I'm just not going to do it. It's just yeah. it's too mm -hmm. hard because I can go to Google and either find that same piece of content through Google or a competitor's yeah. equally good piece of content without a gate. So, so make it easy to help me understand what I'm getting before I go through the gate, make it very clear. Cause if I give you all my contact information on the other side of the gate, I pull up this thing and it's not what I thought it was. I'm going to be PO, right? Yeah, I'm going to feel like- Especially if you start getting all these phone calls and emails. Well, right. Cause then you've broken <laughs> yeah. my trust, right? And trust right. is everything, right? So, and then, and then- and I guess it's all related to the same thing. Give me a reason to want to have that content and help me see the value in doing that. Cause I'm going to give you something of value. I'm going to give you my information. That's, that's something of value. I want to know in advance what the value exchange is. What am I getting in return for that? And if, um, so maybe it's a little snippets of, if it's a video that I'm downloading, maybe you give me a couple bites of the video or something. I don't know, but, but it's, I, I don't know that we'll ever get to right answer on gated versus non-gated. But mm -hmm. it's it's problematic at best. What you just said there now, just well, man, I told you, Mark, we got to rename this podcast to the Meanders because, like, <laughs> there's a whole other the Meandering Barber. That's right. Can you imagine he just wanders around with the scissors? <laughs> By the way, I, I don't I don't know what a sleeping barber does either, but you guys have to tell me that sometime. But anyway, yeah, the super short version is there's a <clears throat> it's a computer science problem. So there's a barber in one room who can either okay, cut yeah. or sleep. And then there's a separate room where customers can sit and wait. And so the okay. problem, the sleeping barber problem from a computer science thing is to how, yeah. how do you know when, or how do you program it so that the barber knows to cut when there's customers in the waiting exactly. room or in sleep when there's none. So it's the idea of like connecting silos. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Create transparency. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the, the one thought that as you were going through that is the idea of personalization. Right. And I think yeah. as marketers, that's something that is always top of mind. Doesn't matter if you're in B2B mm. or B2C. And yeah. I think the the problem that we're all faced right now is the too much data we're, we're expecting to lead on to make an informed decision. But it sounds yeah. like, you know what, you could probably do more with less. So even in the example that you that you had there, Brent, I would argue yeah. if you're you're setting trying to make it easy for gated content, you're asking for this value exchange or some information up front. You may not have to ask for a lot to allow or build that trust. Where do you see the role of personalization in this process? So, so in fact, you wouldn't even have to build a lot of personalization, not even to build trust, but to build help. Um, hmm. So let me back up V just a second and, and take a running start at this. So the, because um, uh, this may be helpful. So, so the, um, <clears throat> so I do, I do a weekly video series called Brent's Breakdown. A colleague of mine named it. She has no idea how close she got to the mark on the name, but that's a different story. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, but the, 
but I'm pumped. I'm here all week. <laughs> but it's also true. Uh, but nonetheless, it is like, you know, it's I, we put them on LinkedIn. We put them on YouTube, yeah. uh, on my profile, my LinkedIn profile, and then the ecosystems profile. But it's five minutes sort of snackable, bite-sized content. Mm -hmm. And you guys can already tell having, we just met, right? But the, um, uh, I say they're five-minute videos. They're actually eight because I can't shut up. But the, <laughs> all right. So, so there's one coming out in a couple of weeks, and and it, it, it just reminded me as I was filming it just how important this theme is that we tend to overlook. So, so uh, let me take a running start at it. But here's the well, you know, I'll do it very briefly. In an article we put in the H, in the Harvard Business Review a few years ago called the New Sales Imperative, we laid out two approaches to selling. We we laid out one called the responsive approach and one called the prescriptive approach, mm -hmm. and these were generated out of data and analytics. So doing a lot of research doing this research, we found these two approaches. We gave them names. One was more responsive. Whatever you need, I'm here for you. You need information, I give you. You want more options? Here's lots of options to choose from. Responsive. Right. Uh, the prescriptive approach is kind of what it sounds like. You know, here's, we need more information. Well, before I give you more information, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing. So you may not actually, information may not be what you, so I, I try to guide, right? Maybe not surprisingly, when you run those two things side by side against commercial outcomes, prescription completely trounces responsiveness. In fact, what's really interesting about responsiveness is not only does it underperform versus prescription, it actually does damage. The more responsive you are, right. the more overwhelmed your customers become, the less likely they are to make a purchase. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the point I was going to take a running start at to get to is, so, but when you look at the statistical model that we use to generate these findings and you say, okay, so you're saying the more prescriptive I am, the more likely customers are to buy bigger complex deals. And the answer is yes, but. Because if you mathematically, if you do the correlation between prescription and commercial outcomes, there is no statistical correlation. The two are not statistically related at all. And you think, well, what, didn't you just say the opposite <laughs> of that? It's like, well, yes, but but what, what it turns out, and here's the punchline, there's something between prescription and commercial outcomes, a mediating factor. And that is the degree to which customers perceive the purchase journey, the decision-making journey to be easy. Mm -hmm. The easier they perceive it to be, the more likely they are to make a purchase. And it turns out what prescription does is it doesn't drive deals. Prescription drives ease and ease drives deals. Okay. And that I think is really interesting because the degree is <clears throat> like, and you think about it as a consumer V, right? It's like, I've got this longer take on this, but like, do you ever go, like go to Amazon and try to buy like I don't know, like a fifteen dollar dongle for your laptop with a U.S. God knows what, right? And you're like, and how hard could it be? You put it in the search engine, obviously you got fifteen hundred options, yeah. and you're overwhelmed. And like, so Amazon says, here's some guidance. Here's our top choice. You look at that as you're about to buy it, buy it, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, one person gave it one star. I better look at another one. Like three hours later, you still haven't <laughs> bought the freaking dongle, and you're overwhelmed, right? It's like, it's like, I just want this to be easy. And so, by mm -hmm. the way, the way Amazon makes it easy for you is they got a button that literally says save for later. So you just hit save for later and the pain stops and it goes away and you haven't bought anything, mm -hmm. but at least it don't hurt anymore, right? So that's kind of what B2B buying is like. It's the same sort of thing. <laughs> you got to have fun when you talk about I this stuff, this. man. This is hard, right? This is so hard, right? So so personalization. All right, so now I can flip that. So all of that to set up your, the, the answer to your question around personalization, Okay. <laughs> Because what we found on personalization is actually super interesting. This is a, as a, a CEV study before the acquisition by Gartner that we did on B2C. What we found is customers' perceptions of why, in fact, consumers, because this is a B2C, consumers' perceptions of why you personalized matter a lot. So if I perceive you as personalizing for your own uh, for your own benefit, like mm -hmm. for you send me a happy birthday, here's a 25% <laughs> off coupon. It's like, screw you, delete, right? It's like, I, but 
if I if I perceive you, so actually personalization for the fake for the sake of it's just creepy, right? It's like, why do you want to know this about me? Get get out of my life, right? Right. But if I perceive you as personalizing in order to somehow make my decision making process easier. easier, then all of a sudden, statistically, <clears throat> the benefits are huge. So it is personal we called it we had a name for this we called it tailored help so it wasn't mm -hmm. just a differentiated from personalization but it's it's personalization that is specifically designed to make the decision easier so here's where then via gets really interesting so i think i believe in this again i'm in the wayback machine a little bit but i think it was huggies the huggies brand but it was one of the it was a diapers brand i'm pretty sure it was huggies um and if it wasn't i apologize to all the different FMCGs out there, that have, but the, the one of the diaper brands had created a website uh, and it was a mommy website. Mm -hmm. and, like, and again, if you're particularly a new mother, I've got to buy diapers for my kid. It's a, it's a kind of overwhelming because you don't want to get that wrong. It's like, you know, they'll probably not get into college if you make the mistake here. Right. So so you got to think about. And so what they asked is like just they asked for on the website, give me two pieces of information. It was like the baby's birth date. And maybe it was just that. It was just like one piece of information. I didn't have to tell you who I was. Right. I didn't have to tell you when my birth date was. I didn't have to tell you when the kid's birthday was. But based on that one piece of information, which I chose to provide in the moment, you didn't get it from back-end channels or scrape it off the internet. I, I chose to give it to you. Then the whole website completely reoriented around personalized oh, content for that particular child and that particular set of needs. And, and so there's, and that, and that as a mother or father was helpful. Yeah. It's like, I gave you a little and I got a lot, lot, lot back. And I think that's, <clears throat> that's the way to think about personalization. Um, and I think the same applies in, in B2B. Cause remember that, that first point about prescription doesn't solve for buying prescription solve for ease and ease solves for buying. It's the same thing as we think about personalizing in B2B to what degree are we personalizing to a role, to a, just to a stakeholder, to a job to be done in such a way that the, the person consuming that personalization perceives like, oh, that was helpful. You just made my life easier. And that's what I would solve for. It's, uh, v and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, not exactly the, com the, the exact uh, example you gave, but just mm -hmm. personalization in general. And I think there's a misperception of it. Like as you were describing that story, like I, I, I would say probably an iPhone could be one of the most personalized devices on the planet, but it's not personalized at all. It's just customizable to my needs. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, but they don't yeah. need, they don't need to create an ad for me as an individual or a piece of content for me as an individual, because they're playing to the similar needs, let's say, or requirements that I have that's so that like millions of millions and millions of other people also have. So I think there's a lot of value in understanding like going back to your decision-making unit and the stages that yeah. they're going through, understanding that for your group of buyers in aggregate can actually be personalized. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to mean that at an individual personal level that, you know, the person's name and the birth date and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Cause you can, you can achieve the tail. I like how you said that the tailored, how do you maybe how, tailored, how help. You say tailored, help. tailored help. You could achieve yeah. that without having to know like their blood type. <laughs> right. right. Or, and, and particularly finding out their blood type without their permission. Without their permission. Right. <laughs> right. It's even more so. It's even more creepy. There, there is, Mark, on that. So the um, one of the single most interesting things we ever found out in our research, it was so interesting to me, we put it in the first chapter of the Challenger Customer, which is the second of the two Challenger books. And it speaks me to your question about personalization. Because in, in marketing, uh, logically, 
particularly when it comes to personalization, there's this idea, I need to tailor my message. I need to tailor my positioning to each of the different stakeholders. So for the head of, so I've got a group of buyers, someone's in IT, someone's in finance, someone's in legal, whatever. So I'm gonna have a slightly different, maybe very different message for each one of those. One of the things we found in our research a number of years ago that was so mind bending, like what was this, was the better and better you get at positioning your offer on the merits of value for each individual stakeholder. So essentially the better you get at tailoring your offer to each one of those individual stakeholders, mm -hmm. the less likely you are to win a high quality deal. It actually does damage. Wow. Yeah, isn't that weird? And when we first when we first saw that first our first reaction is true story. For our first reaction was well that ain't right. When we told <laughs> the data team go rerun the numbers because there's no <laughs> way that's true, right? And and after a week of like asking it to go back, we reran those numbers and remodeled the data probably about seven times, and we were getting really ticked off not at the team but just at the results. Like why is this like why? Because we thought at that point we just spent six months building a data set that didn't work, and then ultimately we kind of had to give in and say wait a minute, what if there's actually something here? And that that launched a, a narrative that became the second challenger book, which is actually makes a ton of sense because it goes all the way back, Mark, to the earlier question about the number and the diversity of stakeholders, which is, again, it's not their number, it's their diversity. The fact that they represent different functions, different metrics, different jobs to be done, different priorities. And to the degree that that buying group isn't aligned with itself already, and you approach each one of those individual stakeholders uh, with this message tailored to them, we call this the... You, yeah. Right. You're exacerbating difference. Right. We call this yeah. the collection of yeses strategy. I get a yes from you, a yes from you, a yes from you, a yes from you. And then when I try to get the collective yes, nothing happens. So one head of sales saw this and he said, oh, we have this problem all the time in our business. One plus one plus one equals zero, which I love. It's such, a, such an evocative sort of quote, right? That's a great quote. And so the whole idea here is we've got to do a better job, not of personalizing each individual, winning them over as individuals. We've got to do a better job of connecting those stakeholders to each other and helping them find common ground. And that that actually, when you put it through that lens, it starts changing really your messaging altogether, I think. Oh, man, I I absolutely love this because I've always had this hypothesis that there's a there is this point where it's over personalization yeah. actually becomes a detriment. But you have all the vendors yeah. constantly pushing, pushing these personalization engines. You want to have that one to one relationship. But the reality yeah. is you can't collect enough data to create these amazing profiles on these individuals to create these personalized experiences. Yeah. So yeah. let's just call a spade a spade here. And let's say, try to get the best message for the audience based on the signals that you know. Don't overcomplicate it. More is, uh, sorry, less is more. And just try to, you know, in both B2B and B2C context is, and just try to make the best you can. I just, over-personalization just can't be a thing. We can't even keep up with the content demands on something like that anyways. Well, you know, and it becomes commoditized too, right? So because everybody's personalizing in the same sort of way. And so it's like, I just got, you know, it's like in your birthday, exactly. you get five different happy birthday <laughs> notes from five different clothing brands or whatever. And it's like, thanks for remembering. At some point, right? Like, oh, you like me. It's like, it's like the, um, the, so when we think about B2B, the th there's this where my head's at now. And a lot of the work I've been doing lately in the last few months is, so we talk about we have to connect them not to us, but connect those stakeholders to each other. But there's this, it begs the question, right, connect them around what? Right? What do we connect them on? And and here, so when I joined Ecosystems, which is a is a software platform around what's called value management or value engineering, I've entered into this world of value in a really deep way. And it's been super interesting because this is the world of value calculators and business case developments is showing you the ROI and the total cost of ownership and the lifetime value and the assessment and the LVAs at TCOs, all that kind of stuff on solutions. 
And what I keep hearing is like, so I build this business case for why, how much value that we're producing for your company. And it doesn't matter how ironclad your business case is. Mm. Customers sometimes are looking to go, eh, you know, and they'll have, they'll have a thousand reasons why. Yeah, no, I hear you. But, but, you know, our priorities have shifted. And that thing that you've just shown me we're going to save a bazillion dollars on is not, is now a nice to have, not a need to have. Or yeah. I hear you and I see your numbers, but those aren't our numbers. And our data is so messy. I just can't believe those numbers Or I hear you, but our CFO's got some really tough going. Our legal's got some questions about compliance and we could never make that happen, even though those numbers are logical. And so, the more I thought about this, the more I came to realize. So we're trying to use. Oh, there's a longer riff here. I I blow up <laughs> per hour if I tried to go that long. That longer riff, but but we're trying to use value calculations to make customers more confident in us and our value right. and our solution and our product and our features, our brand as us as a trusted advisor. There's a there's a much broader narrative which I've been really focused on for the last couple of years around the thing we've got to solve for isn't customers' confidence in us, it's customers' confidence in themselves. And, yeah. and their ability to make large decisions on behalf of their company. They're so overwhelmed with information, they're so overwhelmed with options, they're so overwhelmed. This is me on Amazon trying to buy a dongle. At some point, I don't know, I give up. And I don't hate Amazon. I don't even, you know, Amazon's neutral in this. It's like I just I hate but I hate myself for not being able to buy a freaking fifteen dollar dongle so I hit save for later. Okay. Right. Uh, my wife, by the way, has 583 items saved for later on her Amazon account. So that's, and it's a true story. So that, that's like 583 times a buying journey just quit. It just stopped. It's like, I'll get back to that. You never get back to that, never. right? Because that's just the way it works. So, so he, if we think about what do we need to align our stakeholders on from this perspective, this value calculation, here's my epiphany. See if you guys think of this. The value calculation can't be, we, we think of it as an input to customer confidence. I calculate the value, show them the value, it'll make them more confident. I think actually the the assessment, the understanding, the appreciation of value is not an input to customer confidence. It's an output of customer confidence. And specifically, it's the degree to which customers as a buying group, as a, as a collective, are confident that they're even collectively doing the right thing in the first place. And there's five dimensions. It'll be pretty straightforward. It's what are our strategic objectives? What are we trying to do as a company? What are the practical tactics we're going to pursue to meet those strategic objectives? So objectives and tactics. What are the what are the metrics we're going to use to measure our progress against those tactics? What are the targets we're going to set for those metrics to know when we've achieved our objective? And finally, what's our timeline? Do we want to do that in three months, six months, a year, 18 months? So it's uh, it's again, it's objectives, tactics, metrics, targets, timelines. And if that buying group, whether it's five people or 11 people, aren't collectively aligned around, do we agree? Those are objectives. Yep. Are these the right tactics for those? Yep. Is this the right metric? Yep. Target, timeline. Yep, 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 yep. If I calculate a value as an output of that, that value makes sense. But any value that I put on the table that is a result that 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 is not aligned to those five things and isn't aligned and that where stakeholders aren't aligned to each other on those things, that value is suspect. And so, so and I think whether we're talking sales or marketing, I think there's this, the the opportunity, really the need, is what kind of marketing experience, what kind of sales experience, what kind of digital experience, what kind of in-person experience can we create in order to ensure or at least to help those stakeholders do something really hard more easily. And that is to align around objectives, tactics, metrics, targets, timelines. And so in this world, by the way, it's, you know, we talk so much about discovery, go discover your customer's needs. They don't know. 
If I had to sum up one thing I've learned in 20 years of doing this, customers don't know what they're doing. They don't. And I don't mean that in a means. You know why they don't know what they're doing? Because they're human beings and none of us know what we're doing. God knows I'm a parent for 17 years. I don't know how to be a decent father. It's so hard, right? It's overwhelming, right? And that's where we all are as human beings. We're struggling, right? And so the idea is if I can just help customers feel more confident in themselves and their alignment or what are we even trying to do and how we know when we get there, that's your opportunity to be the one supplier who shows up in their digital footprint, in their content, in their sales interaction, in their customer experience, the one person that showed up and made it not easier to buy from you, but made it easier for your customers just to make a decision. Be that company, be that sales rep, be that marketer. It's interesting. As you were saying that, I was, I was thinking about, um, we had Roger Martin on a couple of times mm-hmm. and, and so talking about strategy, which he's really well known for. And to me, the values, tactics, metrics, targets, timeline. Objectives. A lot. Sorry, objectives. Objectives. Sorry. Objectives. Yeah. Objectives, tactics, metrics, targets, timeline. It's to me has a feeling of uh, strategy. Like mm-hmm. if you think about what the person is that is going through, like decision-making unit is going yeah. through, they're looking at allocating resources to some particular purchase that's supposed to help their business do something. That's right. So the value uh, model that you were just describing to me has a connection to root back to their corporate strategy. 100%. So that they feel like the allocation of resources is worth it and is valuable amongst all those decision makers that you were talking about. And so that's the part of the thing that I think would help create that alignment uh, within the group before yeah. they even go down the path because then it gets really confusing to your point about which dongle like there's 18 million dongles right it's 100 percent. it's like what are we even trying to do here right it's like and i think you know how many corporate decisions like think of something really complex like buying a crm system yeah why why are we buying a crm system and if you ask five <laughs> people you get five different answers and and by the way they're all they could all be legitimate you can have more than one answer i'm yeah. not suggesting that but I need to be able to take my answer and ladder it back up to what are we trying to do as a company? Exactly. And if, at, at every one of those points, there's a potential disconnect. And so you get questions like, why is this taking so long? Well, because we didn't agree on the timeline. Or it's like, well, I, I don't know if that's good enough. Well, we didn't agree on a target. Like, well, yeah, I see you got that, but what about this? Oh, we didn't agree on the metric. And so you can, and so it is, I think you're right, Mark. At the end of the day, we're not really talking about buying and selling. We're talking about decision-making and corporate strategy. And again, customers really really struggle not not customers people yeah struggle with this and 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 it's it's hard and this is why i talk so much these days about not so much frame breaking which is challenger um but frame making is what if you were the person to show up and just help put a framework around that not to tell them what to do because that doesn't work but to provide some guidance on you know here's the three things you want to think about here's the two pieces of information you might want to consider you know in working with other customers like you we find these are the five people you probably want to get involved so i'm i'm putting i'm chalking the pitch or i'm chalking the field i'm just making it feel more manageable thus right. making it more easy uh brent i know you had a hard stop around now do you have a couple more minutes or yeah, we can go a couple more if you want. I'd okay. imagine most of your listeners are like, oh my God, this guy won't stop ranting. But, you know, <laughs> oh, this has been He great. seems so angry. Why is he so angry? <laughs> Brent's not angry. He's fine. <laughs> well, yeah, not at this, at least. <laughs> Those kids on my lawn, on the other hand. Oof, that's... <laughs> 
I just put some seed down over there. It's going to wreck it. I just sawed it over there. What are you doing? So the, the first day, this actually true story, I went out in the backyard and the kids were playing. And, and there was literally a neighbor kid. This is like five, six years ago. Neighbor kid riding their bike on my grass. And I learned, said, get off my lawn. I said, oh, my God. Oh, I no. just became that guy. God, like, it was like I went inside, just sat down, and just depressed for the next four hours. Like, oh my god, that just happened. It's happening. I embrace it now. Was that what you wanted to do with the last couple of minutes? Yeah, yeah that's perfect. Right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you actually had a question, I think. No, I did because it's it's related to that the value model you were talking about, and yeah. and sort of building confidence because it, you know there's a lot of. And V and I have talked about this as well a number of different times, but the idea between differentiation and distinctiveness. And I think like you can have a value at a reseller or you've got a franchise model, whatever the scenario is, where you're mm -hmm. selling the same product as somebody else. But you can yeah. totally differentiate or create a distinctive approach um, in terms of the service or the, the sales and marketing process you have. So you no longer have to go. Oh, we're going to build all this gated content. We're going to lock all the information into our pipeline so that yeah. customers can't access it until they pass through these stages and these gates. Yeah. As opposed to taking that idea that you had, and uh, I think that's the idea of sense making, and that's the evolution of the challenger into sense making, right? Yeah. Is, is, can you maybe talk about that a bit? Uh, uh, yeah. So. <laughs> Let me I'll take it back to a higher level thing. And then we can, so the sense, by the way, the sense making work is captured in the HBR article called Sense Making for Sales. There's a lot of detail on it there. But the, 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 the heart and soul of that idea is that um, it's not just that customers um, are empowered with a huge amount of information at their fingertips that they can get through digital channels on their own, thus allowing them to enabling them, empowering them to delay con, uh, uh, contact with a supplier. Is it that the world that they encounter today, and we know this from research. It's not just a world of a lot of information. It's a it's a it's a high quantities of high quality information. Right. So I got there to do due diligence, and there's just a ton of research and a ton of white papers and, and expertise and data, and it's most of it's relevant and it speaks to my business needs and challenges. And I think that's because as marketers, in particular, over the last ten years, we've all done a really pretty good job of building better, higher quality content. And then you know, and then we built a strategy around it called content marketing. And then we got new tools called mar you know, marketing automation. Yeah. And now we can spam the world at scale uh, with really great stuff. I call this the smartness arms race, right? The um, and by the way, and then the reason why is because about in 2011, this is true. I think I like literally true. About 2011, every CEO in the world woke up one morning and said, "You know what we need to do? We need to be a thought leader." in our industry, right? <laughs> and and the reason why is because they were struggling to differentiate on product. They were yeah. struggling to differentiate on solutions. So they said, we'll differentiate on the the quality of the content we produce. So here, come the band here comes the bandwagon, let's all hop on it. And we all started producing massively good content at massively huge scales. And where we are now is customers completely overwhelmed. It's like the smartness arms race has ended in a tie where the being smart is now commoditized just like your product and solutions are. But you know, lost is your customers are trying to read your white paper and their white paper. They're telling me to zig, you're telling me to zag. Everybody's got research, everybody's got data. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. Click save for later, right? And so, again, the opportunity here in sense making is to just like we have an engagement strategy or a qualification strategy. Unlike when Challenger first came out 12 years ago, I think today, as a sales professional, as a marketing professional, we need to think about what is our information strategy hmm. what information are we going to put in front of our customers when are we going to put it? what are their information needs because in this world if you just show up with a here's our white paper great i'll put it on the stack with everyone else's white paper that wasn't helpful 
can you please move on? Yeah. Right. And we do that through in mails. We do that through BDR calls. We do that through websites. We just, we're just shoveling more content in front of our customers thinking somehow it's going to help us stand out when all you do is like, Oh, that's your bar chart. Great. Well, here's their bar chart. Thanks for nothing. Right. So who's the one that's going to show up and say, you know what? There's a lot of content out there. Let me see if I can just help you make sense out of it all. That's, that's the person. It's very much like the, you guys know the story of the travel agents, like in 2000, in the, in the, in the late nineties, right. When the, remember the, when the internet, the World Wide web first came out, you guys may not be old enough for this, but it was amazing. Right. It was like, but what happened in the late nineties is the travel agency industry just tanked. It just almost was wiped out overnight because I didn't need travel agents anymore. Like it did in the past. Yeah. Fast forward about 2010, funny enough, the travel agency industry is making this really rapid, albeit somewhat different comeback. And this is also written about in HBR as well. We're getting a lot of plugs today. Um, this was not me writing about this, by the way. But the, uh, um, and the reason why it's like, do you know why travel agents made a comeback? Is because, I don't know you guys, have you tried to book a trip lately? I mean, it's, like, it's just so hard, right? It's like, particularly like a complex family vacation totally. at like Disney or abroad or something like that. It's like, there's advisor sites and hotel sites and cheap fare sites. And yeah. gosh, it's like, it's so overwhelming. You think, you know, it'd be really helpful if I could just call someone and just have, have them, them do it, help me figure out what to do. Right. And, and so the question today is to what degree are your, are you your customer's travel agent? That's, that's how you show up. And so Mark, I think the full circle, maybe this is a good way to button up is, um, you were talking about differentiation and standing out. I think the single biggest way to differentiate today is the single biggest way to, that we've always differentiated. If, and, and you know who got it right from the very beginning? Marketers, and particularly B2C marketers, as much as I bash marketers. They got it right because in, particularly on the consumer side, if you look at so much what's happening in consumer marketing, branding from the very beginning, it was always focused on how do I have an impact on how consumers feel about themselves? You mentioned Apple. The reason why Apple is so successful is not because I love Apple, but rather I love me when I use Apple. I love what like what it does for my self-image. I love the what it does, what the, the benefits, the qualities yeah. that it, it bestows <laughs> upon me when I pull up my iPhone and all my Apple products say, oh, you're an Apple guy, right? It's like, but the same thing here is that's the, the way to differentiate B2B today is to focus on it's not how do our customers feel about us, our brand, our products, our features, our benefits. Are we a trusted advisor? But focus on how customers feel about themselves. Does interacting with our brand, our people, our website, our digital footprint help customers feel different about themselves? Does it help them feel more confident? Does it help them feel like that was more easy? If you solve for a customer's self-perception, that and, and you might say, Brent, that's as old as marketing. You say, I, I think you're right. But nobody's doing that. And that's your opportunity to stand out today. That, that that's where I'd land. Amazing, friend. Yeah, thanks so you much got for me your time. Up now. now you're yeah. <laughs> go get those get kids off, off your lawn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this stuff is just so interesting because you know, at the, at the heart and soul of all of it, I don't know about you guys, but it, there's just there's this really deep humanity at the middle. Yeah, hundred percent. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 like the the way you win customers is the same way you win a mate, right? It's like marriage and and friendships are based on like someone. It's like if I think about my best friends, it's not that I think they're amazing, and I do. I think I, I just like I like the version of me that comes out when I'm around exactly. them. I like what they pull out in me. I like who I am, <laughs> and that's why I think the best marriages are based on that. I like me when I'm around you. Yeah. And I think there's an analog to that in B2B, which is I like our company. We feel better about ourselves. We feel more confident. We feel like we can take on the world by interacting with your brand. Yeah. And, and it's, there's, it's so human. And that to me is really, really interesting. I think that's a perfect end 
to this. Boom. How, I dropped the mic, but it's too expensive. Yeah, yeah. Please don't yeah. drop your mic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we got to edit it out. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a hassle. How can people find out more about you, Brent? So um, so I'm at Ecosystems now. It's a company. Uh, our, our website is ecosystems.io. I'm on LinkedIn where we produce a lot of my content on LinkedIn, and then we move it over to YouTube as well. Um, and then we also have a, a, a very uh, large, well, in my mind, it's large, about 3,000 individuals, sales professionals, marketing success professionals, and what we call our customer value community. Mm -hmm. And those are commercial professionals interested in this whole idea of customer value. And uh, we have a pretty active community, and you can find more about that um, over on ecosystems.io website. So come along for the ride. Awesome. And I'm just, I'm out there. I rent myself out for birthdays and bar mitzvahs too. So if, you to, if you need a keynote speaker, you know, hit me up. Call me, call me. Here's my number. That's right. Smash that like button. This has been incredible. You guys so are awesome. Good. You know why? It's because yeah. you're Canadian. Well, be your kind of Greek Canadian. I don't know what you no, are, I'm but you're amazing anyway. Here. All right. All right. Okay. All good. So, yeah. You're the best people on the planet and you live an hour away from the best place on the planet, which is, is Banff. So yes. there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We there do you have go. That. Yeah. We do have that. Yeah. You do have that. Yeah. All right, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Brent. Appreciate your time. All right. Cheers, gentlemen. And now the post-pod discussion with V and Mark. The Mark. Post pod. This is the post pod. Post pod. <laughs> Sleeping barber. Post, post pod. I don't know. We need a jingle. Make it memorable. Yeah, yeah totally. We need, we do. Need, we need better. <laughs> we need so many things. <laughs> we need better marketing for our podcast. Who could we talk to? <laughs> good question. Very good question. I don't know anybody. <clears throat> nah, there's got to be somebody out there on, on Fiverr. <laughs> oh my goodness. Brent Adams. Uh, Brent. Where do you start? Yeah. He, well, first of all, he's super smart and super entertaining. Uh, Incredible. And yeah, he was great. He's just and so thoughtful about um, something that's so important and I, I just, yeah, I really appreciate his work. Yeah, I agree. It was, it was incredible. I love the, the way he approached a lot of our topics. Um, we didn't really stick to our, um, our guide that we had, but it's okay because I think like the way the content's coming out is like super organic and it's just naturally the thought process is that a lot of the stuff that he talks about naturally create as we, you know, as marketers, we're constantly navigating this, this space. So that was very refreshing. Very refreshing. Mm. Yeah. Just when we went off air, we he's like, I'm polarizing. Either people love me or hate me or have a reaction to me anyway. And we're like, the cilantro, cilantro of B2B marketing, sales and marketing. <laughs> yeah, he's good. I, I, you know, it's funny. I like, I, there's so many things it, it, in, all, in a lot of ways. Um, his work kind of has been with me throughout my career because I, when I, when I was in sales, I read the challenger sale and I've got really into that and thought it was awesome. And then as I got more into marketing, um, and following some of the work with Gartner, yeah. uh, particularly in the last year and a half, like it, it's a lot of his work there also yeah. kept popping up. And I'm, I'm literally like looking at these two names going Brent Adamson <laughs> on the challenger sale, Brent Adamson at 
all these other publications. Yeah. I'm like, is that the same guy? And it turns out it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been really eye-opening to, to have him. At the end there, we, we talked about it's a human experience. It's so funny to say that because it makes sense. And yet we get caught up in a lot of the tech, like looking for intent data, buyer signals, yeah. uh, email campaigns, automation, all that kind of stuff. And you kind of lose track of what the important part of the whole thing is, which is helping the customers feel better about doing work with you. You know, I love where, where you where you started with this. It, it came back to this idea of like the tailored help that he brought up a few times in, uh, in the interview. And I think as organizations, brands and, and whatnot, how are you focusing on how customers feel about themselves when they're engaging with your product or service and whatnot, but then providing that tailored help in that moment maybe becomes that distinctive asset or sorry, not asset, the distinctiveness or, you know, anything that you're trying to position. So I think it's interesting that at the end of the day, it's just about helping people solve a problem that they may have. And if you can do it in a way that's the most human or the most natural, you're likely going to win. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you really need to think about? Yeah. I don't know, right? And we talked about yeah. personalization as well. And I thought, again, that... I hate sometimes approaching broaching that project that uh, that topic because it's so it's so vast. But I think it's important in both B two B and B two C. What is that? You know, how much is too much? And being aware that now it's too much, and what's not enough to kind of create like those you know those unique experiences. Yeah, there's a line between creepy and cool. Yeah. Like totally. there's, and it's not very big. No. Like there's, there's a stuff that's cool to be able to personalize from a marketing yeah. perspective that customers <clears throat> might also find cool. Yeah. Like that, it Huggies example where you put in your birth date and it shows you all the relevant products yeah. based on the age of the kid, that kind of thing. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but predicting like, and, and it quickly becomes something that could be very creepy. And, and off-putting in a way that, like, I don't, I, I genuinely, more and more that I think about personalization, the more and more I think it's really not a great idea. Because, I'm with you. like, the Apple thing, the Apple thing, like, I think, to Brent's point, too, like, you can have a salespeople, a salesperson, and the salesperson, she could you know, be the greatest salesperson in the world in part because she's personalizing her message to the individual people that she's talking to. But that's okay. She's like talking to individual people on a marketing side. And if you're talking about like a product development side, you don't need to customize your product or your message to every single individual that exists on the planet no. because that's not the point of it. Like you're trying to solve a problem. That's a problem for a large enough market that there's, a big enough market to build a company around. Right. And so Apple is an example, like they built an iPhone or iWatch or whatever, like there's customization within that, but they're not, they're not like customizing their product and their message for 8 billion people no. on the planet. It's if anything, the exact opposite, they're, they're standardizing. The right. And the messaging is building for the mass for the biggest. Exactly like clusters of people and the biggest issues that they have or the biggest needs or the desires or whatever. Well, 
Like I, I genuinely don't think of personalization as a good path forward from a marketing perspective. I love where you're going with this because it, let's use, keep using Apple as an example, right? Apple could have taken out all the cool little features that their devices do, right? And then retarget audiences based on those little, those little things. I've never seen a remarketing or retargeting campaign from Apple that is isolated one key feature because it's picked up my my search behavior, my my browsing behavior, all the website that I'm visiting that I may be looking for, you know, just just this one thing. They're packaging it all up in one device that now you can customize for it to become personal to you. And I think that's the distinction there. Is like making sure that you're driving the awareness of a product or service the most amount of people as possible, but allow for the customizations or the personalizations to happen on the back end for the user from the user themselves. And I think that is that is like the the nuance. The only caveat here sometimes is yes, they will just kind of look at the camera and rarely prioritize the camera because that has become a thing that we likely use our phones mostly for now is like capturing content. Um, but other than that, it's not it's not really narrowing down every little function and trying to find the right audiences to target with that function. Yeah. Yeah. Like and similarly on the B2B side, I know NetSuite is an example of on the ERP mm-hmm. SaaS product side of things. So they have, I think they're, as far as I can tell, one of the fastest growing. If you look at Google search trends. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, over time, like it's one of the fastest growing ERP platforms mm-hmm. out there in part because they're super focused on the CFO and solving the CFO's problems. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, the, that there are five eleven, whatever that I'm 16 and a half from Brian and yeah. <laughs> the director of sales decision makers, like they're focusing on one person in the decision making unit. And and the needs that that person has from a financial point yeah. of view and financial perspective, because a lot of the subsystems that an ERP plugs into would end up reporting up into finance one way or another. Right. So they're they're choosing to focus, and it's not even personalized to an individual. It's just like focus yeah. more than anything. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, again, it's like they've been able to prioritize who their key messages around. And if like, this is the, the CFO helping him solve, helping him or her solve their problems and speaking their language, that's going to go a long way in getting, you know, buy-in. Um, I also wanted to spend a couple of minutes just talking. I, I called it the five dimensions of alignment that he, <laughs> that I, that I scribbled down. So he talked about objectives, tactics, metrics, targets, and timeline. And I thought that was a really, I like, I like your push there around like, well, this isn't this just really aligning on strategy, which I think you're hundred percent correct on. Uh, but what were your thoughts just kind of like thinking about those five things as being also a way to have stakeholder alignment? Like, do you, do you, totally. do you see that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, his other point about like all the different people and all the different decision makers, if you customize your message, you end up with less alignment yeah. and less agreement <clears throat> and less sales. I think that's that um, those five metrics or what do you call them? The value I had just written value and that objective. He called it value calculation, I think. Right. Right. 
So the value, like calculating value. Yeah. So I do think that's important um, to create that alignment. That was your question, right? How do you create alignment? Yeah, exactly. And kind of using yeah. those five buckets or five dimensions, as yeah. you call them. Because if you can get a group of people, the decision maker group, uh, aligned on the objectives, like why are you doing this? Yeah. What's the po- what's the point of this to begin yeah. with? How's it connecting to your overall strategy? The tactics, like what are you gonna? Wow. What's the approach you're gonna take? What are the key metrics that are really important? What are the targets that you want to see come out of it? And then the timeline. If you have that up front, to me, that's like okay. Well, you're setting up a framework for success for the future, whether they go with you or not. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the sales process, but um, or the sales and marketing process. But at least you have that up front, so that then when you do actually land a customer, you have all those key metrics and you know how to create more value for them after an implementation or whatever the, yeah. the product is that they buy. And then you can also track the performance post-implementation where you go, okay, we have all this metrics. We knew what your objectives were. We knew what your targets and your all that stuff mm-hmm. was. Now let's measure against all those things that we all talked about yeah. that were important. So now you can then start measuring progress as a value as a and, and helping them measure their return no and and i'm and i'm with you and i think what i liked about this even more it's you can almost argue well a client should have this preemptively ready for you as you're preparing because like i could see it both ways it's a way that you know you can go in and kind of help provide service to say hey let's align on our objectives our tactics etc but i also think there's a great internal exercise here that organizations should be doing at the same time to uh, to create that because then it will whittle down like hey who potentially you're either your system integrator maybe or what product you're looking for because if timeline's some super important it's got to be done in the next six months well it may help you in that filtering say well how what vendor can get us there quickly totally like i think for a, a, a company that's helping a customer or client or prospect through this process it's also important for them to think about where does this information go? Yeah. Like you can, I can have a conversation with UV and go, Hey, okay. Tell me about your objectives. What are the tactics you're going to use? What are the metrics targets timeline? We can have that conversation, but if it ends up just being a conversation and it's not recorded anywhere or, you know, it's not being tracked anywhere, then it's just like lost in the wind somewhere. Then there's no value in, in talking about those things really in a meaningful way. Cause it's kind of like a bait and switch. Like we're kind of talking about like this great offer and how we can help build confidence yeah. within your organization and all that kind of stuff. But it was really just lipstick on a pig. Yeah. And then I really didn't care about it very much afterwards. So designing a system and designing a process around how do you help a customer achieve those mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. I think can be really great in terms of like the sales and marketing alignment to helping, you know, understand the process around how you, set objectives if they don't have objectives right or what kinds of tactics exist and that sense making component and that's maybe where you can provide information exactly like what kinds of metrics do companies like yours also look at what kinds of things do they target how do they set targets what kinds of timelines are realistic all that type of stuff i think that can help a customer like you know a company differentiate by just creating a different um or distinctive sales and marketing process to help a customer feel more confident. You know, 
thinking about that Huggies example where you would just add, you know, the birth date of your child and then it would just automatically calculate in the behind, you know, in the back end that, okay, now the child is probably like closer to one. These are the kind of products you would need. I could imagine even in a B2B setting, it's just like, you could say, well, what's the timeline that you want to have this implemented, you know, and then you use that as kind of like a, a drop down. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, based on what you, the information you provided us, here's like an approach that you can take and you can kind of you know, have three approaches and something like that. And then it can kind of give the, the, the buyer there in that context, like, okay, if I want to do this in three months, here's what company XYZ is, is offering that can help us get there. Now you're you're solving a problem in that moment, and I think that's where if we can use some of those insights and some of that are coming from the B two C. And I know one of the questions we wanted to get to him was, you know, we're starting to see the the not the worlds merge, but the tactics really merge between what's been happening to B two C over the years and how B two B is evolving and changing. Um, I think there's there's signals there that we can be using a lot differently totally. to help with that process. I agree. I think that was really interesting that the comment he made about the um, uh, the travel industry. Yeah. I wanted to talk about like WestJet because of that, because yeah, we started leaning on them a lot more, but anyways. Yeah. But it's, a, it's an interesting analogy for a whole bunch of reasons, but for sure, there's a lot more content that exists today than ever before yeah. in history. And so you can easily, like he's right about the widgets. Like I went looking for, did you buy one? <laughs> you, well, no, because it doesn't work. I, I don't exist. So we have, I, we, V and I both have these Logitech stream cams yeah. and I get a new computer and it doesn't have a USB-C port. <laughs> but my Logitech stream cam has a USB-C end. Yeah. And so I was looking for a USB, regular USB to USB-C adapter yeah. and they didn't exist. But I spent like an hour and a half just getting overwhelmed by all these choices. <laughs> Anyway, but that's a real thing. And there's tons and tons of content. And then I think you and I've talked about this before, but like I was downloading a lot of stuff um, to try and understand the market, understand segmentations, understand, you know, whatever better, like things our customers are going through. And I get so many people calling me all the time, emailing me all the time. It was overwhelming. And I just had no interest in like buying what they're Mm -hmm. selling. I just wanted the content to see if it was valuable. So there's like an interpretation when we were talking about intent uh, a couple of weeks ago, there's an interpretation of what I think you and um, of what we put out as a marketing group or a sales group and how we interpret the person's response. So that I give you an email doesn't mean I want to buy your stuff. Exactly. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so like misinterpreting the intent signals is really, is really easy to do. No, I I agree. Um, one 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 final thing here that I th- from from my perspective. Well, actually, just two quick ones. So, the the stakeholders, you know, the five point four to the eleven point whatever. I thought that was interesting. Um, it's true, though. I don't know about your experience, but we seem to be getting a lot more stakeholders involved in a lot of these decisions. But I thought what was interesting was the question that he would pose on. Uh, organizations and saying, you know, how much of your, what percentage of your leads actually generate revenue? And some decided not to, you know, even guess, but it seemed like 3% was kind of like that number. What do you feel about that number? 3%? Like I'd love to get a 3% conversion rate that times through from my digital ads, but 
I mean, 3%. Is that, that, does that sound true for you? Uh, I'd have to look at the numbers again. It depends on the way you measure it too. Okay. Right? So um, <clears throat> the number to me doesn't really mean anything because it might just be the number. Like, okay. that's just what it is. Um, there's different sources of intent. Uh, or sorry, each channel has its own sort of intent. What am I trying to say? There's a convert an innate conversion rate based on the channel. Fair so enough. if you're trying to get, if your objective, and this is what I think what he's talking about before, is like if you're measured off of just getting MQLs, then you'll do things to get more MQLs in that line that you found of his, the MQL to SAL to M- MP and NMP, not my problem. It's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. So you can easily, like, this is a classic thing. I think I've said this before, but. Like when I first started in sales, they're like, oh, we got our call or sales pipeline uh, meeting today out for lunch with an older guy. He's like, grab a bunch of business cards from that fishbowl over there. <laughs> you know, you go to the free lunch thing, drop a business card. And he's grab a bunch of business cards because we've got to go to this the sales meeting today. So the idea was like you, you bring in all these cards <laughs> and then you could say to the manager, like, I have all these these hot leads. <laughs> right. Because all they really cared about at the you know the one particular time was like how many hot leads do you have in your in the beginning of your pipeline, yeah. so it's that equivalent right where you, you, you can get a whole bunch of leads, but if none of them convert into an SQL or a deal at some point, then it doesn't really matter. So, but each of the individual channels also is an indicator of a buyer's intent. Mm-hmm. So you and this goes back to the Chris Walker one that we did like two years ago. Um. You can have an inbound lead. Somebody freely gives their information to you. Almost certainly, that's going to close at a higher rate. All those leads that come from that source are going to close at a higher rate than somebody that downloads content, right? Or or a lead that you or like a list you buy from a third party vendor because their intent is real, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to just like having some kind of interest or being in a target a bucket of target customers. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a question around um, the value of, of metrics. Mm-hmm. Like, are you measuring for the right behavior or are you just creating bad behavior because of the metrics that you've got set right. up? No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Anyway, it was, that was super it fun was great. to have him on. He was really entertaining. Yeah, Brent, thanks again and if you're listening. <laughs> wicked smart. Yeah. Yeah. No, really, 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 really well done. Really well done. Awesome. Okay, V. On to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Adieu. Take care, buddy. <laughs> All right, man. Ciao. <laughs>